Father, we thank you for this day. Um, I echo what Darian said. I thank you for the rain and for spring. Spring is indeed here. And uh, you love us with another season. And I look forward to what it has. And I look forward to what you want to do this morning, Lord. Sometimes rain is necessary uh, to produce a harvest and fresh growth. And so I thank you for that picture of rain. And uh, would you give us your word today would your holy spirit minister freely and deeply to us as we study what it says apply it to our lives and trust you with the results and so we thank you amen so by faith i'm gonna i put a block here uh one because it's a beautiful um little art picture and two uh, because it really speaks to what I want to say. It's, it's, it's the deepest meaning of what I want to talk about today. Um, and I may not hit it in that exact phrase. So I want you just to keep this in mind as I'm talking. Uh, as a bit of a, bit of a prop. So, today we're going to be in John chapter 8. If you would turn there, that would be helpful. Because uh, I just need to explain a little bit about John chapter 8 before we move on. So we can just get everything out into the open. Um, if you look in your Bible, there's little footnotes about John chapter 8 that tell us that it wasn't in the original text. In fact, John chapter 8 from 1 and 2, 11 wasn't in the first five centuries worth of manuscripts on the Gospel of John. It wasn't quoted by church fathers until the 10th century. And when it did start finding its way into the Bible, it ended up in different, three different parts of John and one part in Luke. So they weren't exactly sure where to put it. Now I've read up on this and the story of John chapter 8, 1 to 11, the adulterous woman, we know this story well for the most part. I think we enjoy this story. We appreciate the truths that are in it. The story was probably a footnote. It was probably spoken orally, passed down generations probably spoken by somebody who saw it and wanted it remembered, but it didn't end up in the Gospel of John that we know today originally. So we can do two things with this. We can discount everything that it says because it wasn't there originally and I can't take any sort of truth from it. Or we can see it for what it is, which is a beautiful accurate, emotional picture of the gospel of Jesus and what he came to accomplish. It's a beautiful story. And it hadn't made it there originally. But the gospel truth of it is there all the same. And we're going to look in every verse that I talk about that isn't from John chapter 8 is pointing to the reality and the truth that is in this story. And we can accept as Jesus' divine will and purpose for our lives. One of the overwhelming emotions 
and themes of this story is compassion. And that's what I want to talk about today. The compassion of Jesus Christ in our lives. Do we know compassion? Do we walk in compassion? Have we experienced the compassion of the Lord? Compassion is a wonderful motivator. It will take us to lengths that we would have never gotten to on our own. It made Teresa a mother. Just compassion in itself. It can propel us to do all sorts of beautiful and selfless things for the kingdom. It can motivate us to take in a dog for a loved one that is very large and howls like a wolf when it's homesick the very first night, which was last night. It was like a wolf, this dog, in my home. But you know what? Two things on that. It was a sweetheart this morning, so joy comes in the morning, and that's fine. But um, compassion causes us to do selfless and wonderful things for each other. And I had to remember that again. I, I almost wondered if this was going to discount my sermon when the howling was in full effect yesterday, but it has not, and so we are good. Um, let me read the text to you. If we could get that the text on the screen as well, please. I think it's just 7 to 11 on there, but that's, that's fine. John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives... Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. But what do you say? Now they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. At once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one. Beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. Before this passage, Jesus was in the same arm wrestle with the Pharisees and the other leaders. The latest thing that he had done in two chapters earlier in John chapter 5 is he had healed, he had the audacity to heal a man on the Sabbath. And uh, the battle with the Pharisees was on doing good works on the Sabbath. He says in John 7, 21, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from our fathers, and you circumcise the man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Verse 22. 
It's the same battle with the Pharisees. It's the arm wrestle for power, for authority, and for hypocrisy that went on and on and on between Jesus and the other church leaders. But the issue is authority. The issue is law versus people. Rules versus relationship. That was always the issue. And it's a beautiful and appropriate precursor to John chapter 8 because the battle here again is rules versus relationship. Today I want us to know that the compassion of Jesus is the only victory to our own condemnation. Now maybe it's just me that struggles with condemnation from time to time. Maybe this isn't for any of you guys. Maybe I'm the only person who gets condemned. But the only if it all of a sudden is by chance something for you guys, the only way through condemnation is to fully know, fully embrace and fully accept as the only truth Jesus's compassion for us. That's where it starts. That's ground zero. In many ways, this picture with the woman in the temple is ground zero. It is a picture of everyone's ground zero in the battle of condemnation. And so we should talk about that. Because I think it's appropriate. And I think it's necessary. So there are a couple of different people that we can really identify with in this story. One of them's not Jesus, all right? So we can really identify with the Pharisees, the leaders, the Sadducees, and we can really identify with the adulterous woman. Even if you're a man, you can still identify with the adulterous woman, okay? Because both of these people had the same core issue in that they were living with the identity of condemnation and the fruits that that represented. They weren't living in the compassion. They weren't living as children of God. They hadn't accepted that or really used that as their identity to move forward in. The Pharisees dragged this woman out of her house, caught in adultery, how they caught her, Right? Okay, and so they, they pull her out of the house. They don't bring the man. By law, you had to bring both. You had to have witnesses. Right? Deuteronomy says that both parties in adultery should be put to death. Yet they only bring the woman. Where, was the, where does the man go? The law says we should stone her. This was the question of the Pharisees. Jesus, the... the this lady needs to be stoned, right? That's what the Bible says, right? If you say you wrote that thing, how are you going to go against it? She's right there. We saw her. We didn't really look because that would be sin, but we saw her committing adultery. Right? By the way, there's lots of Pharisee in us, so just, you know, it's all right, okay? Okay? 
They were trying to trap Jesus. There was no good answer. If Jesus said, yeah, you should stone her, they would have gone to the Romans and said, did you know that Jesus is breaking your law where the Jewish people aren't allowed to actually issue a death sentence? Because the Jewish people weren't allowed to kill somebody under Roman law. Okay? The other side of that is, you're going to pardon her? How, she's guilty though. How are you, the Bible says, so you either go against the Romans or you go against the Bible. Those were the choices that they gave to him. Do you notice that none of this was about the woman? That's nice, say, eh? on the worst day of your life, being caught in adultery. Um, you know, the dessert of that meal is you get to be a pawn in a political power play in the busiest day of the temple, which is during the Feast of Booths. Like, this story is right after the Feast of Booths. Everybody's in Jerusalem. Everybody's in the temple. And the woman gets to be a pawn. A guilty pawn, but a pawn all the same. They were just about condemning. Jesus says this in Matthew 23. Now, Matthew 23, that is a scathing uh, tongue lashing that Jesus gives the authorities. It, it is scathing, uh, but he says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Talking about the authorities. In this, it's, it's this idea. Rules, rules, rules. There's no relationship in that. They weren't about the relationship of the woman. They weren't about redeeming the woman. They were about getting their point across. Very publicly. They were concerned with rules and traditions. Right and wrongs. Power and status. This was their game. But we rarely identify as Pharisees, us. Maybe we do. But I believe that there is a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. Church, do we, do we keep score of right and wrongs? Do we, do we judge how we're doing based on how somebody else is doing? And if somebody else is doing maybe a little bit worse, then we're feeling a little bit better. Are we keeping score? Are we concerned with what people are doing more than how people are doing? There's a difference. What people are doing, how people are doing, where do we land in that? Do we wait for crowds or publicity or backup in order to confront somebody else? In order to make our point? Do we wait until there's the most people listening that we can add our last little comment it's strategic when we do that what about the woman ambushed in condemnation ambushed in, compa in compassion she was guilty she had been caught in adultery was this the first time was this the tenth time? Was she planning on this being the last time? 
Did she know what Jesus was going to say? Sitting there, surrounded by yelling, screaming, chaotic men. Did she have this idea of what was going to happen? It would be pure chaos. She would have known Deuteronomy's judgment that both the man and the woman who would lie together in an adulterous relationship should be put to death. She would have known that. So she's sitting there just waiting for the guillotine to drop on her head. Everything's all set up. Everything's ready. How often do we find ourselves waiting for the guillotine to drop on our own head between us and the Lord? How often are we just, we're just waiting for Him to pull the rug of faith and peace and acceptance and adoption out from under our feet? That He's going to snap His fingers and the dream is going to be over. Wow, it actually was a dream. All those things that I was experiencing with the Lord, it was a dream. Condemnation tells us this can't last. It can't possibly last. And do you know why? Because you you don't deserve it. You're not worthy of such a beautiful, good thing that the Lord has for you. You can't nearly expect this to continue. The ride has to end at some point. This is what our condemnation says. And the influence of condemnation is widespread. Yes, the devil is the accuser. Yes, the devil is the father of lies. But he has many very effective avenues in which to reach us including the media, our workplaces, society in general, our friends, our family, and yes, even our church family. And yet the most painful and effective condemnation generally comes from within. We'd be serving five to ten if we got judged for the things we said to ourselves. Least, just straight up nasty poison. And we're doing the devil's work for him. He actually can go work on somebody else. When we're living in self-condemnation, he, it's hands off, it's, it's autopilot. He can go afflict somebody else because the work is being done for him when we live in that. But there's a bit of both of these people in us, a Pharisee and an adulterous woman. You know, this is, this is the best it gets. The bleak picture I've pointed so far is the best it gets without Jesus. There are only two camps. The guilty, the condemned, and the condemner. Those are the only choices without Jesus. And they're byproducts of us not knowing or receiving anything of compassion for ourselves. 
if we haven't embraced the love and acceptance that Jesus has for us, his compassionate heart, our identity as children of God, if we have not embraced that, then the roles of adulterous woman or Pharisee are probably where we're going to end up because they're, they're direct results of us not knowing the truth and living a lie. But importantly, we need to look to Jesus in this story. Yeah, it's, it's good to see ourselves in this and some of the byproducts of not knowing that compassion that Jesus has, that he wants to overflow into our lives. But the important, precious, and valuable pieces of this story in John chapter 8 is Jesus and what he wants to tell us about himself in it. We need to see Jesus in the story. I started with saying that John chapter 8 was not originally in the early manuscripts of John. But the truth of this passage is found widespread in the New Testament that we read. That Jesus has made us right in His Father's sight by His own sacrifice. That He has saved us in a way that only He can. That we were truly guilty wasn't sort of guilt. It was, it was, we were all the way guilty in our sin. Totally helpless to do anything to redeem ourselves. And that's when Jesus came. This story is a representation of the truth and the beauty of the gospel that's relevant in each of our lives. The book of John starts off this way. In 1 verse 16... For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. We've seen how that goes. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So three significant truths of Jesus that were talked about in John 1 and really shown beautifully in John chapter 8. The first is that when Jesus wrote in the sand, he declared to everyone there and to the readers now, he is the only true judge of the human heart. This is really good news for us. Because we're, obs- sorry, but we're obsessed with being a judge of the human heart. We have taken it upon ourselves. We have knighted ourselves, sorry I'm watching a movie on knights right now, we have knighted ourselves as sir, keeper of the judgments of other people. It's a horrible name for a knight, but it's true. When the church leaders brought the woman in front of Jesus, their statement was this, we want you to judge her, And we're going to stand over here and we're going to judge you. So, ready? Action. And they just, they wanted to see. Their whole purpose was to judge him. This is deeply ingrained value in people's unredeemed hearts is to judge the things around us. It's people, it's media, it's food, it's events. It's how many jokes are in the movie. It's, it's everywhere. We're always judging. 
Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. It's amazing that it, it's peculiar, Jesus' response to calmly kneel down and write on the floor. I mean, this isn't trivial pursuit they were asking of him. If you could answer, you know, is Japan farther or Australia? It wasn't some little question. This was a deep, deep question that they were bringing to him very publicly, very spur of the moment. And he calmly kneels on the ground and starts writing in the dirt. Could he have been writing the Ten Commandments? Yes. Could he have been writing the people's own sins? Yes. Could he have been writing the accusation? Yes. We don't know what he wrote. We know that his response was to sit and write and then to ask them a simple question. Who of you is qualified to really judge another? Back to these rules again. says this in Matthew 7, Judge not and you will not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. That is a scary thought. That's a scary thought. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own? See the size difference there. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and this is, to me, what's really important in this. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is saying, because of our own indwelling sin, because of our own brokenness, not only are we not qualified to judge, we're incapable of judging correctly. Because we don't have the ability to actually see what's going on. With the log that's stuck in our own. He says, before you judge anyone, which you're not able to because you can't see out of the big block in your face, take that out because you don't know anything that's going on. In fact, you're probably seeing your own sin in somebody else. Do you see how that works? If, if, if I have a log in my eye, I'm seeing logs everywhere. Am, am I wrong? It's just trees, right? Everywhere. Trees, trees, trees. I don't want to harp on this. It seems like maybe I am harping on this, but it's important. We're incapable of judging correctly because our vision is so skewed. And Jesus is saying, This isn't your job. Nobody's asking you to do this. I've come to judge accurately and clearly and perfectly. Let me do what I, only I can do. But it's, it's, it's the passion we have in our judgments. Many of you, this might hit too close to home. It did at the first service. Nobody said it did, but you can see the faces, so you know that it did. Um, Debates in the car, all right? We are debating people. It, go, it, it roots back into our 
judgment that we like to do, but we are a debating people. Okay? There are good places to debate. In the car is very dangerous. Okay? It seems to bring out the worst, uh, maybe the purest debates that we can have. Okay? And the one thing that's always true is 100% of the people, there's generally only two in these debates, is 100% correctly. They will put the title and deed of their mortgage and their vehicle on this discussion. They are right, 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 right. The conviction we have in the judgments that we see, it's, it's, it's really quite admirable. But that's a steep fall because somebody is, is going to have to lose all the things that they were all in on in their bet. Okay, but we have so much conviction. And it's only Jesus that is ruling correctly. And he came to do that willingly. The second thing that this shows us about Jesus is how he forgave the guilty party. And this is really the encapsulation of his gentle compassion. Because as I said before, the woman was guilty. She had done the crime. As far as we can tell. Verse 9, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. This doesn't happen. This response doesn't happen Ever, ever, ever. This is not what Jesus is supposed to say. This is not what anyone expected. This is not what the law told them that was the necessary response or even the gracious response. This was not supposed to happen. And yet this was the story for the woman and the good news is this is the story for each of us today. The first time we met Jesus... We were in the exact place of the woman. Fully condemned, all the way guilty, just waiting for the blade to drop. Some of us were so lost we didn't even know that we were waiting. And the truth of Jesus is the same. This is where we, this is where we first met the Lord. Condemned guilty waiting for the ruling to come and this is what Jesus keeps telling us he says Calvary Chapel who is here to condemn you where are they where are your accusers where have they gone because they're not here anymore he says neither do I condemn you have you heard that Have you heard that for yourself? Have you heard Jesus say, neither do I condemn you? Have you looked into his eyes as he's forgiven your deepest, darkest sins? 
It's the same Jesus. And he's, he's been picking up people off the floor ever since. This is where we meet him. This is where we keep meeting him. Every time we sin, we end up on that floor again, condemned. And he meets us again and again and again. And he said, where are your accusers gone? They've seen the cross at the top of the hill. They can't come and bother you anymore. But we live like they can and that they do. He silences the condemning voices in our lives. Past, present, external, internal, condemning voices in our lives. He's silencing them. He knew the hearts of the people were to judge and he wanted to know that, wanted them to know his heart was compassion. And he talks about looking at people with compassion often in the Bible. He talks about it in Matthew 9, 14, 15, 20, Mark 6, Luke 15, all speaks of the compassion that Jesus feels when he looks upon his people. Lastly, what this tells us about Jesus is in his final kind of conversation with her. He says in verse 9, go and sin no more. This is an important aspect because we can think that Jesus is just this loving, soft teddy bear that is issuing out get out of jail free cards. It's just always good, always good, always good. And the truth is that Jesus is always good and he's always forgiven. But he sends us off with something to do. And that's the reality of our forgiveness. When Jesus says to the woman, go and sin no more, he's not saying never sin again. He's saying accurately live in the freedom that I have given to you that had nothing to do with what you brought to the table. It's a freedom that we embrace when Jesus accepts us and receives us and forgives us and cleanses us in His deep, perfect compassion. When He calls us sons and daughters of God. Our life is a representation of that truth. And to sin no more is not to be perfect. We can never do that. But as we grow in Jesus, we live further and further in the truth of what He's done for us. As we get freer and freer. It's a life of freedom. It's a life that's accurately living out of the truth of what Jesus has done for us. He says this when He sends out the disciples. He says, You received without paying. Give without pay. Freely received. Freely give. That's how he wants us to get up off the floor and to walk away. Giving freely of ourselves, knowing of how much he's done for us. It's important that we don't forget. I, I, it's probably just me, but I, it's easy to forget the last time we really got our knees scuffed. It's easy to forget the last time our pants were really, really dirty with the dirt and grime that was on the floor that we 
we're fully condemned. And it's, it's easy to forget that. But as we forget that, we forget all that Jesus has done for us. It becomes an expectation. And grace can diminish when it becomes an expectation. When we're constantly saying, God's going to forgive me. God's going to forgive me. He has to forgive me. I just say the word and my pants are clean again. He's just going to forgive me. It cheapens everything. But having the marks and maybe some of the scars and maybe some residual grime that's constantly a representation of how far gone we were reminds us of all He has done for us. And then the true beauty of grace is seen in our lives. And we can really take hold of that and say, wow, God, you did all that for me. And this getting up, this sitting no more, this walking out of the truth, it's, it's like a wobbly little deer sometimes. You see those baby deer and it's like, I just sneeze on that thing, it's going to fall over. Right? Or they take one wrong step. And we're wobbly, we're knock-kneed when we first get up off the floor. We're stiff, we don't walk too well, we don't move too fluently. That's not the point. Jesus says, you walk in the freedom that I gave you. And if it's a little wobbly, that's going to be okay. We're going to work on that. Now just to go back to condemnation really quick. What if the woman would have, after being forgiven, after all the men who accused her left in shame, after being forgiven and told, I'm not condemning you either, you're clean in my sight. Go and sin no more. What if the woman would have got up, walked a few steps, thought, this is too hard, and went and laid back down? Like purposely, he would have went back on the floor. This is what condemnation does in our lives. This is why receiving the truth about Jesus' compassion and love for us is a daily thing. Because the voices that are internal and external, the voices of the world, the voice of the enemy, are continually reminding you that your place is on the floor. Not standing in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That's what the voices want to keep telling you. Not on the chair. I'm not, not, you need to get back on the floor. Getting a little too clean. That's what our condemnation does. It tells us to get back on the floor. Maybe just mine. Maybe nobody else's. All right, but so we apply this very fairly simply to our lives. And the big thing I want to say about how we can apply this is we want to suspend condemnation for compassion. We want to suspend condemnation for compassion. When Jesus met the woman in her state, he was compassionate first and dealt with conviction and how she needed to change second. He had it in the right order. And there are three ways that we want to exercise Suspending condemnation for compassion. The first is with God the Father. 
Okay, so, so why do I bring up God the Father? We've been talking about Jesus. We've been talking about adulterous women. We've been talking about Pharisees. Why God the Father? Often because our, our condemnation tells us the Father ain't very happy with us. Tells us Daddy's out to come and punish us because He knows how bad we've been. And this was one of Jesus' deepest passions is that we would know the love of the Father. Everything He did was to mirror and show us who the Father really was. We're good with Jesus being gentle. We're good with Him accepting us. That's pretty clear, but the Father... There are lots of stories about him, and they weren't very nice, and he seemed really vengeful. And often we've had some pretty bad representations of Father, and so you make some connections, and you think, okay. One of the things that condemnation is hiding in is the disappointments of Dad. We think, Dad's really disappointed with me. So we need to receive the compassion of the Father. Marcion in the second century was a heretic and a a very effective one. And Gnosticism would have been closely associated in the second century. And one of the main beliefs of them was that Jesus could not have been the son of such an angry God in the Old Testament. That God was really nasty. And so, when Jesus talks about his father, he must be talking about a different dad, somebody better. Because this dad couldn't nearly have been the one that brought this guy into the world. So he kind of got rid of the difficult Old Testament that was just a little too harsh. But Jesus came that we would know the father. That we would know the acceptance and the love and the pleasure of the Father. That we would know the compassion of the Father. He was showing us the compassion of the Father in everything that he did. He said, Philip says to to Jesus in John 14, show us the Father, it is enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's very clear. Ever seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, where are your accusers? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me and does his works through me. We need to suspend condemnation from compassion with the Father. Secondly, once we've done that, we can move on to ourselves. And we're like pro, 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 pro at condemning ourselves. This might be the toughest place to apply it to our lives. Some symptoms if you're struggling with self-condemnation and you, you really need some compassion to Jesus in your life. The first one. If your self-talk is rated 14A. And we all know 14A is not for 14-year-olds. Okay? Okay? 
Like, it's not for 35-year-olds. It's for nobody whose age is in here. Okay? 14A is nasty. Okay? If your self-talk should be rated 14A, you might need some compassion with Jesus in your life. Secondly, if you can't make a mistake, how many, of, how many of us live with that pressure every day? I can't screw up. Because if I screw up, something really bad is going to happen. If you can't make a mistake, there's roots of condemnation in that. It's not living in the reality of the compassion the identity that Jesus has for you. If it's all discipline and rules in your life, if your life is so buttoned down, so 90 degrees, so right angles, so many rules, so many disciplines, often that's protection because we don't feel safe if anything gets the least bit out of control. And condemnation's right around the corner. And so we need to work really, really hard because we're expecting that. Hosea 6.6 6 says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's relationships, not rules that God the Father wants and takes pleasure in. And we can't be compassionate with ourselves unless Christ has first been compassionate with us. We can't do it. So how do we do this? Who I am in Christ list. There's many of them. If you Google who I am in Christ, you will find list after list after list about scriptures telling you the truth about who you are. It's already been talked about this morning. There's lists of them. Freedom sessions, set free retreats, counseling, all of these things can help us to work through the condemnation that we're living in and to be free to receive the compassion that Jesus has for us. Lastly, it's with people. Equally difficult. Suspending, uh, suspending condemnation for compassion with people. This one's really hard. Okay? We talked about uh, how we like to judge or how we find it's easy to judge. And the problem is, we see, we see problem people, we don't see people with problems. You see, that just that little difference, problem people, not people with problems. And that, that, that takes us out of the game. We're, we're done then. Scrubs, which is really funny, uh, it's probably 14A, um, but I watched Scrubs in a lesser redeemed time, and that's okay, but... Uh, one of the quotes I always remember, uh, one doctor is saying to another doctor, it's, it's, it's in a hospital, and he says, this would be such a great place to work if there weren't so many sick people in it. Problem people, not people with problems, right? We're often looking at all the hardships in our relationships. This would be really good if there wasn't all of these people around. Wow, church would be easy. Well, work would be easy. Marriage would be super easy if, it, if there wasn't all this stuff going on, right? This is, but this is the ground. This is where we do it. Galatians 5, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus came to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to make it deeper, what it was truly always meant to be. And the law is that we would love each other. And that's Jesus' heart. This is how we show compassion. God chose his compassion through Jesus. Jesus is showing his compassion in real time, today, through us. We're his ambassadors of compassion. I ask you real quick. Um, if somebody you knew was in their home and was reading this passage, as they meditated on it, as they meditated on John 8, 1 to 11, where Jesus picks this woman off of the dirt, calls her clean, and sends her on a life of freedom. As they're reading this and meditating on this, would your face come to mind as somebody that reminds them of this passage in their lives? Would they see you as a face of compassion as they read this? Like, wow, that really reminds me of this person. I didn't get that until, yeah, two days ago. Wow, that, that's incredible. Like, would we see that? And our opportunities are endless. Endless opportunities to show compassion. Endless. When I, w- I was a waiter in a earlier day, and uh, the thing I liked about waiting or whatever is um, I got tips every table, hopefully. And in my broken state, I received the tips as approval. I thought, this is great. Uh, I don't know how I'm doing, and I don't think I'm doing very well, but I can serve these ten tables, and I can be as fake as I want, and I'm going to get this little back rub of approval at every table if I do a good enough job. So all day, all these tables are going to be telling me I'm okay. Now, that is how you become a good waiter in that style of brokenness. That is not generally how you have a fulfilling life. Okay, so don't, don't hear me incorrectly in that. But the opportunities I had in my broken state to sense approval, it was at every table. And this is the same opportunities that we have in this very day. Every table that we come across, every group of people, every situation is an opportunity to, to really be this strong, accurate ambassador of Jesus. But it starts by knowing it personally for ourselves. We have to know the compassion of Jesus before we can start operating in it. So I'll, I'll ask Greg to come up, please, if you would. God seen in Jesus, Jesus seen in us. And it's this compassion that we can give. Who do we have in our life that we can just commit to getting up from today, leaving and saying, I know exactly who I need to be compassionate to. I know exactly who needs to be picked up off the floor in Jesus' name. The problem is not finding a name. The problem is picking a name of the many that you probably have. 
but it's important just to pick. The world needs our compassion, and we are experts in it because Jesus has so generously lavished his compassion on us. So if we would stand and we would, let's pray, okay? So why don't you stand with me before the band plays. Lord, I, I ask you to bring to mind an area of our heart, Lord, that we're, we're actually living in condemnation. Maybe it's from ourselves. Maybe it's, uh, we think it's from you. We think it's from somebody around us. We think it's from a past issue or a present issue. Uh, but I pray you'd bring that to mind, Lord, and that you would give us the strength to release that to you. And to exchange it for your compassion, Lord. Would we see ourselves in the story? Would we see ourselves being picked up off the floor by you, Jesus? Because that's the truth of what you've done for us. We would be stuck, stuck, stuck without you. But because of your spirit in our lives and your constant presence, not only can we know your compassion, but we can transfer, we can... We can share it generously with the world around us. Would you show us clearly one person that we can, we can really seek to show compassion to today? Thank you that it has nothing to do with them doing anything in return. It has nothing to do with them earning it or deserving it. Lord, it's a gift. It's a free gift because we freely received the compassion and grace from you. Lord, make us givers free, generous givers. We thank you.